Okay, hello again. Um, today's Bible reading is from Psalm 130. If you don't have a Bible, there are some up the back there. Please take one. It's a gift from TBC to you. Um, so if you'd like to join in opening up to Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Good morning, everybody. Such a funky intro. Um, welcome. Uh, my name is RJ. I'm the uh, associate pastor here in Tungabi Baptist Church, and a big welcome to you. Uh, again, if you are new or newish to our church and you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, uh, we are going through the book of Psalms. Now, if you're new to Christianity as well, the, the book of Psalms is is quite unique compared to the other books of the Bible because most of the books in the Bible are, 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 are given in a historical narrative. It's, it's a story. But the Psalms, really, it gives you, it, it gives you insight into raw emotions and feelings. Uh, it's, like, it's like the news will tell you that there's a war in Ukraine. Uh, but the Psalms will be like the journal of the soldier in battle. So you get access to what they're thinking and they're feeling. And this is, I think, very, very helpful for us today to be reading the book of Psalms. Uh, because, see, I believe that on one hand, in religious circles, we, we tend to be fearing or admitting what we're feeling. So some religion would tell you that you need to suppress your feelings because you need to hide it because deep inside you are nothing but a sinful being. Therefore, it's, your feelings are dark, they're unstable. Uh, therefore, you can't admit who you are or what you're feeling or you're thinking. Um, so you have to suppress them. But I feel like on the other hand, in modern society today, modern psychology will tell you that it's the complete opposite, that you should really ex be expressing your feeling, your emotions. Uh, you need to be the real you. You need to be angry. You need to be even vindictive sometimes. You need to be jealous or passionate to express your emotions and vent it because it's really helpful for you. But I think the Psalms is somewhat in the middle. It says like, well, you don't deny it. But at the same time, don't let your emotions overcome you. Don't let it define you. And it's suggesting that what you do is that you, you take your feelings and your emotions to God. To pray your feelings. To be honest with Him. And so in Psalms, we see this very uh, open, as very candid prayer of depression, prayer of hatred, prayer of anger and fear. But also there's a prayer of extreme joy and satisfaction and wonder. So Psalms is really these raw, emotive prayers. And it's helpful not just to, to pray about our feelings, but to actually take them to God and to process them, to reflect them in, in a way that's really give light to who God is and who we are. Now, that's, that's just an introduction to the Psalms. So let me pray and I'll, I'll begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the openness and, and the candid revelation that you have given us, that we can really don't have to suppress ourselves, but we can take them up to you 
And we can trust that whatever you're going to do with them, as we have heard from Beck, that we can trust that you will lead them into your glory and our good. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, many years ago, uh, before the age of live streaming, uh, someone gifted my wife the first two seasons of Downton Abbey. Now, at that time, we didn't really watch TV a lot because uh, we had, two, uh, we had um, three young kids, so we were quite busy. But because it was a gift, we thought that we'll watch an episode or two. But then two episodes became the two seasons in just two days. We just binge-watching it. And the next thing is that we got so addicted that we bought the next two seasons and then the next final two, and then we watched all the movies that came out with it. And you might think, That's, it must be a really, really good series. Well, it is. But uh, interestingly, there's really nothing so special about the series. It's, it's really not intense drama. There's no special effects or actions in there. But the whole series is really set in this house, the, uh, Downton Abbey. And I believe that what's, what gets you into the series is that it's very, very relatable. It shows you that whether you're rich or you're poor, you're an aristocrat or you're a servant, whether you're young or old, everyone has this ambition and dreams that, that we all aspire to be. And so everyone has this, this self-worth, but at the same time, it shows that everyone has these deep secrets, everyone has this, some sort of moral flaw, everyone has something to hide and be ashamed of. And so this TV series is something that we can all relate to. And it seems like whatever is happening in Downton Abbey is really happening in our own lives. You think that you're watching a really good series, but often it's just a mirror of what's happening in our society and in ourselves. That Downton Abbey is a full of dreams and aspirations and hope, but more so it's full of hidden guilt and shame and failure. And there's nothing more interesting, I think, than seeing other people, especially those who, who we tend to admire, go through the same mess as we do. That's why we love the tabloids. And so the Psalms that we're looking at really talks about this. It's, it's very relatable. It's going, we're going to look at the issue of guilt and shame and how we get to deal with it. Now, this particular Psalm has only eight verses in it, as we've read. And yet in these wonderful eight verses, we can see that guilt and shame, it's, like, it's likened to someone falling in a, in a sinkhole. And guilt and shame is, is like falling into a quicksand. And here's God really reaching out his hand and rescuing his people out of this hole. So let me dif- divide our passage today in three parts. Uh, and the three parts are that we get to see that we have this sinkhole of guilt and shame. And yet we have the rescue, the rope that's given to us in order that we get to, to, to be saved. And lastly, the process of just climbing out. I want to explore that what it means to, to be saved by God. All right, so the sinkhole in verses 1 and 2. The rope we'll look at in verses 34 and 7 to 8. And the climbing out in verses 5 to 6. So let's begin. Now notice the, the vivid imagery here in verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. He's in a depth, a deep hole. He's talking about his situation, his, how he feels. Now, depths in Hebrew is associated with death and destruction. Now, we don't know his situation, but we can sense that he feels desperate. That the only thing he can do is to cry out. He's like in a sinkhole, trying to grab onto something, struggling and, and crying out for help. And I'm sure many of us would have been in a similar situation. We're in deep trouble, alone, hopeless, desperate. 
Maybe you are one. You are in that moment. You are in that moment today. But what is this psalmist sinking in? He's not sinking into just any problems. We can see that he's sinking into some sort of guilt and shame. How do we know that? Verse 2, my cry for mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Verse 3, he mentions his sin. If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, who can stand? He's talking about being in this hole, about being stuck in his guilt and shame because of his sin. A sense of failure, a sense of, of unworthiness, a sense of self-blame. And he says, I'm just, I'm just drowning in this. With you, Lord, nothing can stand. And so here's a man just drowning in guilt. He feels unworthy. Now, I think many people, plenty of people will say, well, you know, guilt and shame is not so much of a problem today. Because guilt, especially, it's outdated. It's, guilt is really for, for traditional people, for, for people who, who live in this traditional system of, of morality and religion. People were so guilt-ridden back then. That our society today, we shouldn't be held up with guilt because guilt is about doing the wrong thing. But really, what's wrong 20 years ago might not be so wrong today. So you just do you, whatever makes you happy. Do what you think is right. Because we don't have to be so guilty because a lot of things now are very permissible. That's what we often say. And so we think that the 21st century is really about freedom of expression. Don't let your culture, don't even let your parents, don't let your friends tell you what's right and wrong, what you should or shouldn't do. You do you, and you be proud of it. Don't feel guilty and be ashamed of it. That's, that's the modern advice, right? Now, I think uh, that is true that less and less people are feeling guilty, but I believe that even though people are feeling less guilty, I feel that shame is not really going away. That Less and less people are feeling guilty about things, but more and more people are feeling the sense of shame. And there's a difference between the two. Uh, they overlap in many ways, but they are also dissimilar. And let me point this out. See, in guilt, you're dealing with a very specific act. that You, you break a rule. That, and you think that I've done something that I shouldn't have done, that I lied, I cheated. Therefore, I feel guilty. I feel bad. I feel responsible. It's about what you've done. But shame, on the other hand, the shame is the feeling of being unworthy or a sense of, of inadequacy as a person. The focus is not on what you've done, but, but on who you are. So, for example, right, if you cheat in your exam, you will feel both guilt and shame. You'll feel guilty because you broke the rules. But you will also feel shame because you will be thinking to yourself, why did I do that? I'm way better than that. I didn't realize that I was such a coward that I had to cheat. I didn't realize that I was so desperate that I had to lie and cheat, right? That's shame. In shame, we're saying, I aspire to be something, to be someone. I had a vision of what I should be. I have a sense of where I wanted to go, and yet I failed. That's shame. And so in many ways, it's more devastating. And here's the point, because in our postmodern era where we say that moral standards, they're all subjective, that we decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, that today we can we say that we can easily get rid of guilt because we argue that, well, religion, they can't tell you what's right and wrong anymore, that even our parents can't tell you what's right and wrong, that it's okay to cheat a little, it's okay to express love the way that you like, or it's okay to find happiness the way you want it, that we can justify guilt easily. But the problem is we can't really get rid of shame that easily. 
We can't ignore, we can't ignore guilt, but shame is always there, kind of lingering in the background. Shame is always bringing us down, that we're always struggling to live to this, some sort of standards in our hearts and in our minds. And here's why uh, Ernest Becker, he's a philosopher and intellectual in back way in the 50s and 60s, and he's not a Christian, and he wrote this book called Escape from Evil. And he asked the question, again, he's not a Christian, I don't even think he believes in God, and yet he was asking the question, where does evil come from? Like, why do we do evil things? And this is what he said, and I'll, I'll translate later on after I read it, because it is quite hard to understand. He says that evil comes from our urge to heroic victory over our own vulnerability. It all comes because through a heroic victory in this life, we are attempting a visible testimonial to our cosmic importance, that we're all born with a deep neurotic fear of insignificance, that we, all, that we will have no effect on the world, and therefore we're driven to this heroism. Remember, he's not a Christian. I don't think, again, but he's saying that everybody, everybody is, grows up with this feeling that we're insignificant, that we're nobody. So everybody is growing up with a sense that we're not important, and yet we're all deeply hoping to make something out of our lives. We, we were hoping for this cosmic importance to feel valued. We aspire to be for, for heroism. We all feel like nothing, so we all want to be something. And so he says that the source of evil in this world is the need to do something heroic. That's what he's arguing in his book. To achieve, to do something great. Now, why is that bad? He says because in his book he says that because we will do anything to get there. That we all have a sense of expectation for our lives. That we all feel that our life needs to mean something. And so we need to achieve something important. We need to be courageous. We need to be bold. We need to be creative. We need to have self-worth. We need to do all these great things. And we, we will do anything. That we will cheat. We will take advantage of people. We will lie just in order to get there. That's what he's arguing. But then we see this sense of shame that we either... We can't get there, or even if we get there, we realize that this thing that we're aiming for, it doesn't really satisfy, or the way we get there is that we do evil. Either way, it brings, it brings us down, that shame is there. And that is why if you read through your Bible carefully, we know that the opposite of guilt, right? The opposite of, opposite of the word guilt in the Bible is really innocence, that if you're, if you're not guilty, you're innocent. But the opposite of shame in the Bible is glory. The opposite of shame is not pride or self-worth, it's glory. And so we know we fall short of the glory of God. That glory is his word for worth. And this is why the Bible describes sin as falling short of the glory of God. That we fall short of the glory of God, meaning that we, we don't get to be where we're meant to be, what we were created to be. And even last week, we said when Adam and Eve sinned, they had to cover themselves because they felt shame. They fell short of who they were meant to be. They were trying to be heroic. They were, they were trying to be somebody, but, but they were doing it th their way. And they were willing to do anything, even disobeying God, in order to get there. But instead of finding glory, they found shame. 
So we were created to be people full of worth and glory, but we know we fall short. And that's the reason why Psalm 130 is still relevant. It's our Downton Abbey. There is a sinkhole, and many, many people are sinking into it. We're sinking in our sense of unworthiness. The sense of shame has not gone away. And this is why we are always looking around. We're always comparing. And even like in the news lately, we look at Michael Clark and say that, well, see, even a person like him, a great legend, he falls short of glory. That we are working ourselves too hard. We're beating ourselves. We're trying to live up to our own self-worth. We get anxious. We get depressed. We get stressed. We get overworked. Why? Because we know the ideal self. And we can't get there. And we are out of our depths. That's the problem. And here's the solution. Here's the rescue. If you're stuck in a sinkhole and you're sinking... You, need, you don't need someone else jumping in with you. Right? If someone dives in and saying, here, I'll save you. No, you say, no, get me a rope. Because if you jump in, we're just going to sink even faster. That we need a rope where the foundation is secure. And that's, it's the one thing that you, you need to hold into to, to get out. Now, we know to get rid of guilt, right? it means that we have to pay the price. Right? If you get a speeding ticket, you've broken the law, you carry guilt, and to remove that guilt, you pay the fine. It's to be justified with the law. You face the consequence, and, the, and, the, and guilt is removed. Now, to put that cosmically or spiritually means that there is this level of standard, that there is a law. There is, and if you put it spiritually, there is a divine law. And in verse 3, even the psalmist says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? He's saying that there is a standard before God. And really, the first step is to acknowledge that there is a standard. See, in, interestingly, in Hebrew, verse 3 literally says, If God looks at our sins, no one can stand. It means that God is always looking. He knows. But more importantly, it means that God's eyes is the standard. His standards are the only thing that matters. That morality is not about what others think. It's not even about what you think. The standard is God's. It's what God thinks. And here is why this is very important. Why God's standard is really what we should be following. Because on the one hand, if you don't live up, for example, to the standards of your parents, and often that standard is getting a good career and making a lot of money, and you ask, okay, is that a sin in God's eyes? Well, the answer is no. Then you don't have to feel guilty and ashamed if you, don't, if you don't get that, if you don't live up to that standard. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. I'm, not, I'm saying that it shouldn't be crushing you. It shouldn't be putting you in your depths. Because ultimately, it's what God thinks that really matters. But on the other hand, if you commit adultery, if you sleep around, and our society says, that's fine, everyone's doing it. You have to ask, is it a sin? Well, you have to say, yes. Then you have to deal with it. You have to confront it. It doesn't matter what society thinks. What matters is what God thinks, what God says. And so my point is, you have to acknowledge that ultimately there is this standard in heaven or, or in the universe that you have to see that there is this ideal, but it is only according to God's eyes. 
But secondly, that's not all, because you might say, okay, if that's the standard, then all I have to do is just obey the commandments, obey the Bible, live up to God's standards. Well, verse 3 answers that. No one can stand right before God's eyes. And so going back to the illustration of speeding ticket, we know that you don't just pay the fine, because what's the other thing that's taken out of you? Your demerit points. You also pay with your demerit points. It means that even though you are justified by paying for your fine, you are still tainted by the points. And what do you do, some of you, if you've run out of points? You shouldn't be doing it, but you look for the scapegoat. You look for someone who's got a perfect record, and you say, hey, can you take this for me? See, the second thing that you need is that you need a redeemer. You need a savior. In verses 7 to 8, it says, Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And in verse 8, he says that he himself will redeem Israel. He will come to save you from all, all of your sins. The psalm is really saying that God himself will come down. That hope, we know hope is that something that we use to get out of the sinkhole. Now, hope is something that you use to, to feel like your lives matter. Hope is that something that you, that you hold on to so that you won't sink into depression and insignificance. And hope is that the thing we say, hey, if I can just have that, can, if I can have that one thing, then I'll feel worthy. I'll have glory. So hope is anything that we make our lives worth living. Now, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Most of the time, our hope is a good thing. That it might be your education, it might be your career, it's a good thing. It might be your position that you hold on to, it's a good thing. It might be your family, your religion, anything that gives you your identity and your worth and your purpose. But the problem is, here's the problem. If you pull on, this thing, on these things as your hope, you will end up pulling them with you into the sinkhole. You put your hope in your marriage it will place so much burden on your marriage. If you put your hope in your spouse and in your kids to, to give you this unconditional love, then you'll end up destroying your family. You put your hope in your career, your career will weigh you down. And if you start to sink, you can't just work harder and harder and harder and try to be better. You have to say, there must be something else. I need a new redeemer. My career is not saving me. My relationship is not saving me. My good looks is not saving me. I need a new savior. Now, modern therapy will tell you to look for something else, to find the new you. But Psalm 130 is really saying that our deepest problem is that our hope is not in God. That the biblical hope is not your hope. The reason that you're sinking under a sense of unworthiness is because you're looking at something else and saying, I need to have that. If I can just have that one thing. But Psalm 130 is telling you, put your hope in the Lord because he will not fail you. See, verse 8, it says, he himself will redeem Israel. The psalmist is saying God himself someday will come. God himself will not just give us a set of rules that we have to follow and obey. God, God himself will come down and will redeem us with his unfailing love. How? How is he going to do that? See, the word redeem in there, there in Hebrew is also the word ransom. Literally, it's saying he will pay the ransom for you. It's saying that he will pay for your sins. 
He will take your demerit points from you, and he will come down and deal with your insignificance. Now, can you see the gospel, the good news in Psalm 130? It's really telling us that God knows everything. He knows what's wrong with you. He can see you. He he can see your deepest and darkest shame. It's exposed before him. And yet, he is willing to save you. That Jesus Christ on the cross is saying, I know you from the inside out. My eyes can see everything. And yet, here I am, dying for you, loving you. What Jesus is saying, is there anything else that you, can put your, that, you could put, that you could put your hope in that will forgive you like I do? Is there anything that you, could, that you could put your hope in that will love you like I do? See, it's that knowledge that will transform, that will transform your life. It's that knowledge that will change you. Knowing and believing that will change your life. That he's the redeemer that pays the fine that you can never pay. But more so, he gave his perfect life, his perfect record, a life full of worth and glory to you. So that when the father looks at you, he can see his perfect son. That's how you get out. Now, just very quickly, the climb out. Because maybe you're thinking today, you know, I believe this, but nothing is happening in my life. Maybe you have been praying for weeks and you're not hearing an answer from God. Or maybe you have been a Christian for a while and you feel like there's nothing has changed in your life. First, realize that you have to wait. Look how many times it's been mentioned in there. It's a process that you have to wait. I don't know where you are in your journey of faith, but even if you just start to believe today, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, realize that it's a long and difficult journey. The Bible tells us that redemption happens in an instance. That you, are, you, you are, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are a Christian. You are saved. But transformation and growth is a gradual process. That you can become a citizen in a day, but your adoption, sorry, your, your learning and, 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 and adapting to the new culture will happen gradually. And it's the same thing with being a Christian, being justified. It's, it happens right away, but being a Christian will, will be a long and slow, gradual process. That the Christian life is a life of waiting and trusting God. But secondly, we are to wait expectantly. It says to wait like a watchman. You wait with expectation. It means that, you, you, that during the night, when it's, when it's dark, that you, you wait knowing that rescue is coming. That God is coming. A watchman is a person high up in the tower and can see the big picture of things. And it's a reminder to look at the bigger picture of life. That as you wait, don't get bogged down with the small things, that, things in life that doesn't really matter. It says to put your trust and wait on the Lord and look at his bigger plan. And lastly, just very quickly, we have to wait in community. In verse 7, it's not just a personal prayer anymore. It's a corporate prayer. It addresses the whole nation. It says, oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. See, the transition from verse 5, he's talking to himself. He's waiting for the Lord. But after he reminds himself, he talks to everyone else. He says, Israel, now put your hope in the Lord. I think it's a reminder for us that the Christian faith is not done in isolation. That, yes, we do our private devotions and prayer. But after that, we're meant to talk to each other 
to help each other out, to get out of the sinkhole, to remind each other of the bigger picture in life. And that's why we do church, because we're here to remind one another of the hope that is coming, that the hope is certain, that we can encourage one another, we can speak truth to each other, we carry each other's burden, because while it is still dark, it's so easy to lose sight of the hope that we have. But together we can say to each other, from verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption, because he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Church, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful assurance. We thank you that you have not only taken our guilt by paying for, for our sins on the cross, but you have taken our shame by giving us your perfect life. And so, Lord, help us to be reminded of who we are in your sight. Help us, O oh Lord, not to care too much what others think, but help us to build our foundation, our identity, our future, and our hope in your eyes. That as you look at us, you see your perfect son. And therefore, you, you see us as your treasure. And so, Lord, help us to put our hope in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.